In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent means arriving in a place, and so we are celebrating or preparing to celebrate for Christ's arrival. We are preparing to celebrate His first arrival, uh, God's becoming man. And in doing so, as we prepare to celebrate His first arrival, we are also preparing for His second arrival. So we're doing both at the same time. We're preparing to celebrate Christmas so that we will be prepared when Christ comes again. We are preparing for His arrival. And part of that preparation, the preparation that the Lord calls us to do, is about hoping. It's about desiring that God come. And this is what the prophet Isaiah uh, shows us. He says to the Lord, come down. He says, come down the way that you did in Sinai. Come down the way that you did when you led the people out of the wilderness. Come down and dwell with us. And so Isaiah shows us prophetically this desire that we're supposed to have for the Lord to come and to be with us. And this desire that we have is so important, a hope and a joy that we have in our hearts. He says um, that the Lord um, is um, going to those who wait for Him. So waiting and preparation are the same thing. We don't wait for the Lord like you might wait for a train where you just twiddle your thumbs and there's nothing to do. We're waiting for the Lord like a, a host preparing for guests to come. When we are waiting for guests to come, we prepare. We make sure there's room for them. We make sure there's some place to sit. We make sure that when they sit down for a meal, that they're comfortable and that they have everything that they need. We have an anticipatory joy uh, in that waiting, in that preparation. And so Isaiah is saying that we need to hope and have this preparatory joy for the coming of the Lord. That we need to prepare our hearts and our minds uh, so that they are welcome places for the Lord to dwell. And so that we're joyful when He comes again. And indeed He says, um, you meet those, this is speaking to the Lord, you meet those who joyfully work righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. So this joyful working is so important. You know, anybody that has ha had children or has had nieces and nephews or been around children at all know the difference between somebody who does their chores, somebody who cleans their room, and somebody who likes to have their room clean. It's all the difference in the world, right? It makes all the difference. Just somebody that does their chores and does them uh, just because they have to is not the joy of a parent. The joy of a parent is when the child wants to be clean. They want to have a clean room. They want to get their work done, right? Then we have this participation, this joy, and that's what the Lord wants for us. He doesn't want to give us a bunch of tasks to complete that we do like recalcitrant youth. He wants us to participate and to want to do these things, to be ready to be with Him. And so this is the attitude uh, that is so important in the work that we do. The work that we do in preparation for the Lord doesn't bring Him. It's not like it's some kind of a magic trick or act or like we're making the Lord do anything, right? Uh, Isaiah says um, uh, that our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And he says, there is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take a hold of you. So we can't take a hold of the Lord. We can't force Him to do anything. And it's so tempting for us, right? We fall into all the time this temptation to say, okay, Lord, I'll do this for you if you do this for me, right? We try to make these kinds of deals with the Lord. Or we think, oh, because I've gone to church or I've done these things I'm supposed to do, then I'll get something good in return. This is a pagan idea that we somehow can take a hold of the Lord and make Him do what we want if we say certain prayers or do certain things. 
And this is uh, not the way of the Lord in heaven. These are the kinds of temptations that Herod the Great fell into. Even though he was doing wonderful things by restoring the temple. You'll remember that the temple of Israel had been um, ruined and destroyed by the Babylonians. And then again by the Greeks that come through. And after 180 AD when they finally restore the temple after the Greeks. It's still in disrepair and they have to spend a lot of time and energy and money to restore the temple. And what we call the the second temple period. And Herod, King Herod, one of the Hasmoneans, who was a tributary king under the Romans, spends incredible money. Herod was given the authority to tax under the Caesars, under the Romans. And he uses a lot of this tax money to restore the Temple Mountain, to restore the city of Jerusalem. So that by the time that Jesus comes, it's in this great splendor of the Second Temple period. But Herod doesn't do it. It's clear to us from history um, out of some love for the Lord or some desire for him or desire to worship him. He does it in this way of trying to grasp the Lord, right? If I do these things, I'll get what you want or I'll get the favor of the people, right? And these kinds of works where we do them to get something from somebody or to get one over on somebody or to try to kind of manipulate them a little bit is what Isaiah calls these, these righteous deeds of polluted garments, right? These filthy rags. Right, They are worthless and hideous and to be put away. These are not the kinds of righteous deeds that we do when we are joyfully anticipating the Lord because of our changed hearts. And this joyful anticipating, um, this preparation of our hearts and minds is what Jesus is talking about at the very end of his teaching here in Mark's Gospel. We're here this morning in Mark's Gospel at basically the same point in the gospel that we were last week in the reading from Matthew. They're both at the end of Jesus' teaching, at the end of his teaching ministry. Here in Mark 13, we're right before he celebrates the Last Supper and he's crucified. This is the end of his teaching. And he teaches about the tribulation. He teaches about the suffering that we um, endure and that the church has endured, right? The church has always suffered, has always been persecuted. Um, We have always been standing up for the truth in a world where the truth is not the popular thing to do or to say. And there is suffering, there is tribulation uh, due to that. And he says that um, he will come and he will restore all things. He will finally end this tribulation when he comes again. He will restore all of creation. He'll even remake the stars in the sky. He is going to reclaim and restore all things. And he's going to bring all of the elect, all the people um, that love him and have been waiting for him to him. And he says um, that, that we will know these things and we will be preparing for these things when we look for the sign of the fig tree. You remember that um, Jesus, when he enters into Jerusalem, curses a fig tree. Do you remember that? The fig tree is a very interesting symbol. And when we read about the fig tree, we should be thinking all the way back to Genesis. You remember when Adam and Eve take the fig leaves and place them on their privates, right? Um, This is this um, false covering of sin. And uh, the fig leaf and the fig tree is a very strange kind of a fruit. When you think about um, Jesus cursing the fig tree, you should be um, thinking uh, that this is confusing the same way that the disciples did. You remember when he curses it, they say, what's he doing? Of course he's not going to find any fruit on this tree. It's spring. It's not the time for figs. Figs are a late summer fruit. So why would he curse a fig tree in the springtime when it's not the time for it to bear fruit? The fig tree is a very um, interesting kind of a fruit tree. At at the first blossom and at the first leaf, it produces what they call a false fruit. 
It's an initial fruit that is not edible. Uh, but it's uh, the fruit that eventually the fig fruit is going to be formed around. And so it's a false fruit or a first fruit formed in the spring and then later in the summer the whole fig forms around this first or false fruit becomes the pod inside of the fig. And we know that if we don't see that, that first fruit or that false fruit, that the later summer fruit won't come. It's clear evidence. So if we see a fig tree that doesn't produce any of that early fruit, we know that there won't be later fruit. We know this about our lives. We know that if we haven't been prepared, if we haven't been ready, we're going to fall into failure. We all know this. We all know that when we go to talk to somebody and we haven't prayed for ourselves, we go to do something difficult, we haven't asked the Lord for His protection, we go into an, an interview and we haven't really thought about why we're there and what it is that we're going to say or anything in our life, if we haven't done the proper kind of preparation, we haven't um, seen the goal that we have and we haven't seen what the Lord has for us, His purpose in our life, the meaning in our life, and we haven't done that previous work, we know that we're not going to bear fruit because we're not prepared. And this is what the Lord says. He says we have to do this work of preparation. And he says we do this work of preparation by being on guard and staying awake. Well, I count in the end of Mark chapter 13 here um, from verse 33 that he says, keep awake or stay awake four times. Do you think that that could be important? That he says it four times in as many verses? Seems like that might be important, right? Stay awake. So what does he mean by that? We are physical beings, we are mental beings, and we're spiritual beings, right? And sometimes we like to think of these as being separate, that somehow we're, we're just minds, right, with bodies, or we're just emotional people that have minds. Or sometimes people like to think of ourselves as just being spiritual, right? But we're all three, and we're all three at the same time. And sometimes we are more focused on one or the other. Sometimes we understand this, this mental aspect of staying awake, right? We know what it means to mentally stay awake. We know what it means to stay focused, right? We know how it is that we need to read certain books. We need to read the scripture. We need to pray. We know that the books that we read influence us. We know that the, the, the songs that we listen to, the music, the movies, all these things have an influence upon our mental being. And we know that we have to stay awake and be focused upon good things in order to be prepared to think in the right way. And we know that emotionally we need to have those guardrails as well, right? We know that we need to stay awake, that if we don't be careful, our emotions can get away from us, right? And get ahead of us. And we know that if we enter in without first calming ourselves down and being prepared, that we can be reactive, right? We can become angry or frustrated or sad because we haven't done the preparation that we need to do so that we can be in calm control and so that we're not reactive. It's the same thing for us spiritually. We have to be awake spiritually, and that means to be focused upon the truth. To be awake spiritually means to be focused upon the truth. And when we deny the truth, or we subvert the truth, or we forget about the truth, we fall asleep. And falling asleep in this case is death. And there has been uh, the danger of ignoring the truth throughout human history... And unfortunately, the prophets of the church don't really do a very good job of warning us about this, but the artists do. William Shakespeare, in his uh, great work, Hamlet, right, has Hamlet coming back from the university in Wittenberg, and he talks about the, the, the philosophers in Wittenberg 
um, saying that truth is relative, right? And that relative truth ends up corrupting Hamlet in his heart. Dostoevsky, the, the Russian novelist, was a prophet, right? He wrote 70 years before the institution of communism that atheism and socialism led to spiritual death and destruction of people. That when they forgot about God and they turned to socialism, it would tend to murder and to suicide. And he said the whole, the whole nation would turn to it. And this is exactly what happened. He paints the exact picture of what happened in communist Russia. Our own poets do the same thing. The first time I read Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 and the wall of televisions in the 80s, I thought, that's crazy. The first time I read Aldous Huxley's Brave New World about babies being born in test tubes and um, people being physically intimate with no hope of having children doing it out of recreation, I thought, that's ridiculous. The first time I read uh, Animal Farm, right, by George Orwell, about how some animals are created more equal than others, right, and some groups of people are going to have um, um, benefit over others, and the race theory that we have today is fitting exactly to the plan that, all, that, uh, that Orwell foresaw in Animal Farm. Decades before all these things happened, the poets and the artists of our time saw exactly where our society was going. It is the denial of truth. It's the denial of God. It's the denial of our being created for purpose and meaning. To be in families, to be married, to raise children, to protect our children, to restore them into the image that God created them for with purpose and meaning. It is this false denial of truth that leads to the destruction of our world and to our falling asleep and to death. But when we're focused upon the truth of God, we are awake. So how do we do that? St. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says that we're called to be saints. We're called to be sanctified. We're called to be holy people. We're called to be filled with God's grace. So we're filled with God's grace. We're filled with His power so that we can do the things that He calls us to do. And that is to bear gifts. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? The gifts of the Holy Spirit are tongues and the interpretation of tongues. It's wisdom. It's knowledge. Right? It's understanding. Right? It's prophecy. And the prophecy that I've been talking about is the prophecy of the artist seeing what happens when people deny the truth. And these are the gifts that we're supposed to be using in the church to encourage one another and to focus one another upon the truth of God so that we stay awake. We are given these gifts gifts by the Holy Spirit for not our benefit, but for the benefit of the whole body. We are given knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that we can be focused upon the truth and so that we all can stay awake in the knowledge and love of God so that when He comes again, we are prepared and we are ready and we are joyful. We've only got three weeks. Advent is short this week, this year. The third, the fourth Sunday of Advent is Sunday, December 24th. That means we're going to celebrate Advent in the morning, and then that evening we're going to celebrate Christmas Eve. So the fourth week of Advent is about 10 hours long. We've got a short Advent, a short time to prepare 
to remove all the debris and all the detritus and all the excess of our lives. <coughs> to make room for God in our hearts and our minds and our lives to be focused upon Him, to be focused upon His truth so that we are awake and we are ready and we are joyful when He returns. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen.